Welcome to Military History Plus, the podcast that gives a broad view of the history of war. I'm Professor Gary Sheffield, and my co-host is... Dr Spencer Jones. And today we're going to do the first of a number of deep dives when we're going to examine a particular historical event or topic in some detail. And Spencer's going to lead on this, which is the First Battle of Bull Run, or do I mean the First Battle of Manassas? That's a very good question, Gary, because as some of our listeners may know, in the American Civil War, the North and the South had different naming conventions for battles. So the North would name the battle after its nearest major geographical feature. So in the North, it was known as the First Battle of Bull Run, whereas the South would name it after the nearest town or village. In that case, the South calling it the Battle of Manassas. And if we're going to get really complicated, of course, this is the first battle of Bull Run or First Manassas, because there'll be another one fought the following year. And I guess today, depending on the on the name you choose, it actually has some political consequence, political significance. It, it absolutely does. And as the great Prussian military philosopher Karl von Clausewitz, of course, tells us, war is an extension of politics. And one of the most fascinating aspects of the First Battle of Bull Run is its political consequences, its political imperatives that cause it to be fought, and the political fallout that occurs from it. And I think that's perhaps, and this isn't to diminish the actual events of the battle itself, but I think the political aspects that swirl around First Bull Run are in some ways the most interesting for historians to consider. And dare I say, I think they also have some relevance to the way that we look at the the war in Ukraine at present, and perhaps some warnings and some lessons can be drawn from how the world reacted to the first battle of Bull Run, because it's very easy to get drawn into the image of that very first battle in a war. But as you and I know, Gary, that the first battle of a war is almost completely different to the battle that will end a war. Armies evolve, wars change, and uh, that's particularly true, I think, of first Bull Run. Well, two, two, two stray points before we launch into the, into our main discussion. Bull Run, a river, a creek? Yes, uh, sexually a, a, a river. Um, not a particularly wide one, not a particularly um, important one outside of the context of this battle. Uh, but it is one that will actually shape uh, the nature of the um, of the battle. Bull Run itself, it's about 30 miles long. Um, comes out of the Bull Run Mountains in Virginia. Not but not one of the great rivers of this particular area, but of course it's famous for its association with two battles that are fought nearby. Sure. And the other thought is, I guess, in today's climate, in 2023's climate, uh, whether you refer to, to a battle as this battle as being Bull Run or Manassas has some particular political significance, which I guess we might touch upon later. Uh, absolutely, yes. The, 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 the Civil War, and, and this is perhaps the topic for another um, deep dive, has always been politicised. It was politicised from the moment the war began. It continues to be politicised throughout the, the 1800s, 1900s, and it's just as politicised now. It's just that the only difference is the, the, the mood of the politicisation swings in different directions. And, uh, of course, the, the Confederacy... The, the nature of it, the, the nature of, of why it fights, the nature of how it's run, what it's like to live in the Confederacy, its relationship with slavery, all, of course, under intense re-examination right now. Um, that's probably a topic for another um, deep dive, but we will be touching on this as we go through it. Sure, yeah. Okay, right. So first battle of Bull Run. I suspect most people who know anything about the American Civil War will have heard of the back, uh, but probably not not much 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 more than than, than that. So what's the what's the background to it? Why why do the two armies come to be fighting? 
the background to, to the war, and, and I appreciate many of the listeners might already know this, but just to, to reiterate, uh, a whole a problem we've been brewing in the United States almost since the the revolution, and that this was the question of slavery and its importance, particularly to the southern economy. And through the, this had worsened, the, these tensions had worsened through the 1840s into the 1850s. And in the uh, 1860, it really reached ahead. The election of, of President Lincoln was seen as a signal to the South that uh, slavery was going to be abolished or at least significantly reformed with profound cultural and economic consequences. And this prompted in December 1860, South Carolina to become the first of the US states to declare its secession uh, and uh, effectively declare itself independent. A few months later, further Southern states would um, uh, make, make the same, same decision. Uh, and in February 1861, uh, the Confederacy was born, the Confederate States of America initially forming its capital in Montgomery, Alabama, uh, and forming a Confederate States Army just a few weeks later. So it effectively becomes um, an independent state with organs, the organs of independence. <clears throat> And of course, Lincoln actually hasn't become present by the stage, has he? No, exactly. It's, it's simply his election that has caused this, this sudden reaction, particularly in South Carolina, that they, they think this is it, this is, there's going to be profound change. The only option left to us is, is to become independent and uh, other states join them. Um, gradually, the contradictory grows until eventually the, the, the hostilities break out. There's a strange interregnum um, as the Confederacy is forming because... This is unprecedented that there isn't any kind of history to draw upon with this. How is this going to be resolved? And of course, Lincoln's really keen to try and resolve this peacefully and amicably, but it doesn't end that way because in April 1861, Confederate forces opened fire on Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor in South Carolina, um, eventually bring it to force it to surrender. Um, this is effectively the declaration of war between the Confederacy and the um, the United States, and, and just two days after the U.S. surrender Fort Sumter, uh, sorry, a day after the U.S. Uh, surrender Fort Sumter, uh, President Lincoln issues a proclamation declaring an insurrection against the USA has taken place, and so there is there's a political reaction in the North. And to suppress this reaction, this insurrection, Lincoln calls for seventy five thousand volunteers with ninety day enlistments to join the pre existing U.S. Army. Um, and this is the, the beginnings of the, the civil war as, as as will come to pass. Right. OK, so Bull Run is what? What date is it fought? Eight so Bull, Bull Run is fought on the 21st of July. So it's just a few. July. It's effectively it's three months after uh, Fort Sumter falls, just over three months uh, later, as the armies muster and prepare and effectively prepare to march on, on one another. There's a very significant incident as well um, shortly after the... Um, Lincoln's call for volunteers. And that's that Virginia, which is, of course, the northeastern southern state, also decides to join the Confederacy. And on at the end of May 1861, the Confederacy moves its capital city from Montgomery in Alabama to Richmond in Virginia. It makes sense in many ways. Richmond's a bigger, richer, more industrialized city. It's got much better rail links. But it does mean that somewhat unusually, given the sheer size of the United States, the rival capitals, Washington, D.C. for the Union and Richmond, Virginia for the Confederacy, are now only about 100 miles apart. Yeah. So in this huge, vast theatre of war, the capitals are effectively on each other's doorstep. And that will have profound implications for the Battle of Bull Run. 
Well, it always struck me that this is a real sort of self-inflicted injury by the Confederacy, because I know, I know Virginia is, is the most prestigious state because it's where George Washington came from and all the rest of it. But yeah, plonking your capital, you know, 100 miles from the enemies, that's given the, um, the size of the Confederacy and the opportunity that they you would have thought they would have had to sort of conduct defence in depth. That's always struck me as being a decision which probably wasn't entirely thought through from a military point of view, I think it's fair to say. I- I think that's absolutely fair. The, the, the military arguments for placing the, the army in Virginia, there are some. It's a very rich state. You're going to need to um, sorry, place the capital in Virginia. It's very rich. You need to defend it. Uh, but it also, it locks the Confederacy into that theatre for the rest of the war. And, and as you say, if, if it had stayed at Montgomery, Alabama, though a much poorer city, it's a much easier city to defend. The, uh, the, the Union have to advance deep into the Confederacy to get their hands on it. And uh, that's a factor. But... Of course, in, in 1861, nobody is thinking of, oh, very few people, I should say, because there is one person who's thinking about it. Very few people are thinking about a long, drawn-out, attritional war. Uh, the, the general expectation is this will be short and uh, decisive. Right. Well, I, I've actually got quite a number of books on the, the on the <clears throat> American war, but I was sort of browsing my shelves the other night. And, you know, should we say books on Bull Run aren't exactly leaping off the shelf and say, read me, read me. So, I mean... <laughs> What's been written on this? That's a, a very good question because, despite being the, the first battle of the um, of the American Civil War, it, it's I wouldn't say it's been neglected because I think that's something we can all say as historians. All oh, this battle that interests me is neglected. It will always seem neglected to somebody with an interest in it. But in comparison to to, to other battles of the American Civil War, Bull Run has not received anywhere near the amount of literature. It's said that Gettysburg might be the most written about battle in the entire world. A bit of a dispute whether uh, Waterloo or Gettysburg holds that title. And certain other battles of the US Civil War have also received a um, huge amount of, of, of literature upon them, uh, particularly thinking about Antietam. But Bull Run, as the first battle, uh, has received comparatively little um, compared to the other great clashes. In some ways, that makes sense. Bull Run itself is actually a small battle relative to the battles that will come much later in the war. It's also, I would say, a little difficult to research because it happens very early in the war. Indeed, it's the first battle of the war. Materials upon it are not as detailed as come later in the war. The army's paperwork systems are nowhere near as detailed as they'll be later in the war. People who fight in a battle, by the time they come to reminisce about it, they've often had years of war and it's faded in their memories. Or they might have been killed and and there's nobody left to talk about it. And what it means is that in terms of literature, I'd say that there's three really important books that were written about um, the first Bull Run. Uh, The first was actually in 1913, and it was written by a man called R.M. Johnston. He's um, an American uh, professor of the era. And it's a really deep military book that's simply called Bull Run, Its Strategy and Tactics. I believe it's still in print. And and if it's not in print, I'm sure you can find uh, cheap copies elsewhere. And it's a really good book about how do the armies manoeuvre and what do they do. It's it's not a, necessarily a conventional history, but it, it's a very detailed look at it. And he really broke this down, partially as a, a teaching tool for the US Army. And in 1913, of course, nobody knows this First World War is about to break out. But Bull Run, its strategy and tactics, goes through an absolute purple patch in the First World War because people start reading it in the US to try and learn something from it quite an interesting aspect. It's not until the 1980s that there's a real new aspect, um, that there's a, a, a certain surge of interest in the battles of the American Civil War. It's tied in with anniversaries. It's tied in with a clearing of a post-Vietnam hangover within American military literature. 
And there's a number of books actually come out about um, Bull Run or Manassas then, uh, of which the most important, I think, is John Hennessy's The First Battle of Manassas, which has the evocative subtitle, An End to Innocence. There's two aspects to this that keen-eared readers will pick out. First is that Hennessy uh, prefers to call it Manassas rather than Bull Run, which tells you something about uh, about that. And secondly, it's the subtitle, uh, which is An End to Innocence, which is... That's the strong theme of this book about the naivety of the armies and, and how they're um, how it's how they've been disillusioned. Uh, and finally, and, and perhaps the, well, in my opinion at least, that the best single volume that's available at the moment in 2014, Edward Longacre, who's written a great deal about the Civil War, he wrote a new history of the battle that's called the Early Morning of War, Bull Run 1861. And this is a pretty comprehensive look at the battle in its military aspects, with a particular focus on command and control which is one of Longacre's specialities. So three three books separated by Ormond were, in fact, over 100 years. Now, and though there are other books written about Bull Run, uh, which I've uh, skimmed over, I think these are the three most important. And, and the fact it hasn't received anywhere near the amount of coverage that other battles have, I think, is, is quite interesting. Well, we'll put details of these books in, in the show notes if anybody out there wants to, to, to chase up. OK, well, let's just put it in the context of, of the US Army. I mean, so the, the US Army has fought... Uh, a war against Britain, the War of 1812, which actually ends in uh, 1814. It's had a lot of frontier fighting, I guess, what today we'd call small wars or counterinsurgencies against Native Americans. It's fought a war against Mexico uh, 15 or so years before the Civil War broke out. Um, but um, it actually, it's not a terribly experienced army, at least not in this sort of fighting, Mexico aside. That's absolutely right. The The American army of the, the 18, really from the end of the War of 1812 up until the, the, the center of the war with Mexico, is in some ways quite a peculiar institution. It's very small. It's extremely peculiar small. Peculiar institution. Would you like to rethink that phrase? <laughs> Let me rephrase that and say it's quite an unusual institution, perhaps. <laughs> if you don't know what peculiar institution means in an American <laughs> context, uh, go and do some background reading on slavery. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. I, 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 would we call that a Freudian slip? But it's an unusual institution. Um, it's very small. It's never more than about 16,000 men. In, in total, which is, is of course, tiny for a, a, a continental-sized nation in, in many ways, and a nation that's continuously expanding in this period as well, pushing west against Native Americans uh, and running up against Mexico as well in the 1840s. It's very small. It's overwhelmingly influenced by the French. The a teaching curriculum at West Point, which is, of course, America's main military academy, is overwhelmingly influenced by the French. Uh, that, that's a legacy of, of course, France's involvement in the American Revolutionary War and the fact that the West Point doesn't really want to learn anything from uh, anybody else. And, and who are you going to learn from in the 1840s? It's, it's either France or Germany. And because of that connection, it's France that the Americans look to. But this means that the, the West Point curriculum is much like the, the French military curriculum at the time. It's overwhelmingly based on engineering. It's very, very technical. And that in some ways suits the American army because the American army also, as, as well as being a, a war fighting force, also has a civil engineering aspect. The, the US Corps of Engineers carries out a huge amount of public work uh, and is used to sort of construct useful things like bridges, roads, aqueducts and so on. So it, it's in some ways, it's it's almost a civil force as well as a war fighting force. And it, it's very, very small. It's, it's wars that it fights against Native Americans uh, involved 
just a few hundred troops in most cases. And life on the frontier for the American army is just incredibly grim. It's it's really not a great place to be. You're very far from civilization. You're in a dangerous area. There's very little prospect of, um, dare I say it, uh, career advancement or success in any kind, way, shape or form. And recruitment for the American army in the 1840s is overwhelmingly driven by drifters, people trying to get away from something, because if you've got yourself into trouble on the East Coast, join the army, you'll be posted to the Midwest to be far away from trouble. And it's actually even used by some men who want to get out West, but don't have the resources to do it, because you'll be posted out there and then you can desert the moment you arrive and you can go and try and find a farmstead or, or, or a homestead or something. And desertion rates out on the frontier are absolutely huge, insubordination, um, ill-discipline, absolutely enormous. Um, the, the army is a strange force out on the frontier, and it's 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 pretty grim, uh, and it struggles to recruit uh, for, for obvious reasons. It, it's, it does, though, have some strengths. It's not a completely useless organisation. It's it's good at small unit tactics. It's good at um, what we might term light operations, so fast movements over large, large distances and fighting at the end of them. It's adaptable. It's flexible. Uh, it knows how to fight that type of war. And a lot of those skills, particularly small unit skills, are put into practice against uh, Mexico in the war uh, fought between the US and Mexico between 1846 and 48, where you have the US regular army provides a backbone for the um, for the Americans. And as much as I've just criticised the US army for having a lot of problems, placed into a, a pitch battle situation with the Mexicans, they actually perform very well. They're uh, highly motivated. They have better discipline. They have better training. Uh, and that's that they have a decisive tactical edge. The American small unit skills that have been developed out on the frontier are, are really put into good use against the, Mex the Mexicans who... Though the Mexicans, have, in many cases, have more numbers, a lot of the Mexican army are basically levies, just people who've turned up with guns, peasants, yeah. uh, and so on. And their, their trained aspect is very weak, and, and the Americans certainly have an edge over them. But they've got some very, very fancy uniform, as are Mexicans. So. Oh, they, they do, some superb outfits, especially Mexican cavalry. If any, any war gamers are looking for a, a painting project, the Mexican army in the 1840s has some beautiful outfits. But uh, the, the, the Civil War famous, uh, sorry, um, the Mexican War, famously, is where a number of future Civil War generals cut their teeth. But, of course, fighting on the same side. So, let's get this right. So, um, Robert E. Lee yes. fights in the, Civil, in, in the, in the Mexican War. Yes. yes. Grant fights in the Mexican War. Yes. Is, uh, is, is, is George McClellan there? I mean, I mean there's, there's huge numbers. There, there certainly is. And, in fact, the... Um... Uh, the the commanders of Bull Run will all be involved in the Mexican War. Um, Urban McDowell on the American on the uh, Union side, Joseph Johnson and PGT Beauregard, uh, Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard, uh, also fight in the um, in the Mexican uh, War. Uh, uh, on the of course the the United States Army side, and they'll of course then go on to fight against each other uh, you know, fifteen years later at Bull Run. But it's a it's a real, really important formative experience for these. These are, of course, your young officers. They're, they're seeing pitched battle for the first time. They're seeing a, a we might term a, a more formal, conventional campaign for the first time, and indeed the only time. And it has a huge and, and lasting influence on them individually, which I think is is very important. They, they learn a lot from this individually. They see certain things happen. But not every lesson from the, the war with Mexico proves relevant, of course, in the Civil War. It's a different type of war 15 years later. Uh, can't, I can't resist saying this, of course. You know, the uh, the Mexican War 
is is basically an American imperial. Yes, uh, yes, absolutely. One point in the in the Second World War, uh, Americans are criticizing British imperialism, uh, and and uh, the Brits sort of mutter something about the eighteen forties and the Mexican War to sort of, you know, point out the Americans actually they then they're, they're also known to carry out a bit of imperialism again. <laughs> absolutely, and it does remind me that when. Uh... Imperial Germany is attempting to persuade Mexico to, to get involved in the First World War in 1917. A fairly harebrained scheme, it has to be said, and which the Mexicans rightly dismiss out of hand. But the Germans actually try and tempt Mexico into that war by talking about reclaiming lost territories. And of course, this is referring to uh, Texas, parts of California and so on, uh, that the Mexicans had lost to the United States decades earlier. OK, well... Um... So we've we've mentioned the the regular US arm, um, but again, floating in the back of my mind is the idea that in the Mexican War and certainly in later in the Civil War, particularly at Bull Run, there was a sort of you know an alternative American army of, of volunteers and and militians and so on. How how does that fit into this? This I think is is one of the most underrecognized aspects of, of first bull run in the early part of the civil war and, and this is as you say there is an alternative american army that in many ways is more popular with the public and in some cases is is better uniformed and better equipped uh, than those rather moth-eaten regulars shivering out on the and the, the wooden forts out on the frontier and this is the, the american a uh, malicious system and through the eighteen, the early 1800s, this militia system, which traced its origin in many cases back to the uh, Revolutionary War or even pre-revolutionary, these are local defence units that were formed to protect particular areas. They have strong regional ties. These units have better recruitment than the American army. They have, uh, in some cases, they're better funded. They draw uh, a mixture of state funds or individual wealthy donors, or in some cases, if particularly fashionable units, you join and you pay a subscription fee, which pays for the upkeep of your uh, your units and indeed your units at Barrett. And some of these units are, are truly famous. So if we think about, um, just to take some examples from the, the Confederacy, uh, a unit which, again, for war gamers, if you're looking for an interesting painting project, uh, the Georgia Hussars, who are a cavalry unit from Georgia, they were founded in 1736 so pre-revolutionary, and they have magnificent pale blue uniforms with white stripes. Absolutely stunning look, it has to be said. Um, they're still in existence in the, the Civil War. They're also still in existence now because they're they're part of the 108th Georgia Cavalry of the National Guard, which is fascinating. Many of these militia units actually feed into the modern National Guard. But you've got a whole range of these across both North and South that have been formed by either states, formed by wealthy individuals, formed by associations. They, and, and they all operate slightly differently. So they're allowed to choose their own uniforms. In some cases, they're allowed to uh, choose their own equipment in terms of firearms or if they're an artillery battery, because this isn't purely infantry and cavalry. It also includes volunteer artillery units. They're allowed to choose those and maintain these. And they regularly turn out for uh, parades, for drill and so forth. They're part-time forces, uh, but they're, they're very attractive and they're attractive to join because you get a smart uniform, you get a little bit of pay, uh, you become... You don't have to go anywhere. You're, you're effectively localised. It's not too onerous for you, the work. And you get to look very smart and cool. And as a young man wearing one of the smart uniforms of one of these militia units, uh, you, you're going to look the part. And it's going to be attractive. It's going to be exciting. There's an element of adventure uh, without too much hard work. And that, that means these militia units are, are very appealing. And in many ways, they're the backbone of the American military system. They were also the backbone for the American military in the war with Mexico. 
um, although the U.S. Army is, is forms the core, it's volunteers who are overwhelmingly drawn from the militia who form the, the bulk of the fighting forces. And they, it has to be said, they fight pretty well in Mexico. They're, they're highly motivated. And what they lack in, in training, because not all of them are particularly well trained, uh, they make up for in courage. Uh, they certainly press their, their attacks with, with great bravery. And it has to be said, even, even some ill-trained militia is generally better trained uh, than Mexican troops who are, are particularly poorly trained and poorly equipped. And so they, they can overcome these deficiencies. So if you're a young man in the United States and you wanted to join the military prior to the American Civil War, you'd be pretty desperate if you ended up joining the regulars. Much better to join your local militia unit, get a smart uniform, you don't have to do too much, and you get to stay in the, the place that you live. And it's these units, and there are a multitude of them. Um, in fact, I don't think there's anywhere where you can find a complete listing of all the pre-Civil War units. Um, but there are dozens, maybe even hundreds of these militia units across the United States in both North and South. Well, it's worth mentioning, although uh, obviously the United States became independent from Britain, British Empire in 1783, these militia and volunteer units come very much from the amateur military tradition, which is, which is very British. <clears throat> so in fact, if you look at the Americans uh, units you were talking about, you'll find parallel units in the UK uh, and increasingly in places like Australia and Canada. So it's actually all coming from the same common um, pool, if, if you like, of, mm. of the idea of, of citizen, citizen soldiers. And of course, just to Again, we return to this on a future podcast, I suspect. You see in many, uh, many armies uh, in the two world wars, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, for example, uh, these um, uh, part-time forces are the core of the armies which actually fight in both world wars. So it's a, a very long-lasting tradition. In fact, of course, it still exists in, in various form down to the present day. Well, mm. uh, before we take a break, I think it's worth saying something about the society mm. that these these soldiers and these units come from? Because, of course, we all know from watching films and televisions and, and re reading novels and what have you, what a violent society it was. I mean, we're talking about sort of the, the Wild West cowboy society, or at least that's the, the image. How true is it to life in the late 1850s, early? It's, that, that's a, a, a topic that's been much debated, it has to be said by American historians. And I think we can sometimes overestimate the, the violence of um, the Wild West which is, is really post-Civil War, the, the westward expansion to the 1870s and 80s, up until the, the end of that period, around about 1900. What's interesting to me is that a lot of American historians have said that the Wild West's violence is a little bit overstated. There weren't shootouts every day at the, the corral. There weren't constant barroom brawls. But on the other hand, in the 1850s, America was a violent society, especially out on the borders. The most famous example of this is Bleeding Kansas, which uh, where you've got almost a... A, a perpetual insurgency between anti-slavery um, fighters, described as border ruffians, and pro-slavery fighters. And these, these groups, which are um, not associated with either government, are well-equipped. They're heavily armed. They actually bring field artillery into the battle, uh, as well as muskets, knives, swords, anything they can lay their hands on. And there is intense violence through Kansas, which it... It's almost like a, a small-scale insurgency between these two forces. Uh, violence out on the frontier is casual and, and frequent. And life in general in the US is pretty tough. Um, it's very much still has aspects of a frontier society in terms of its mentality. Even though there are booming cities by the 1850s, particularly on the East Coast, very large metropolitan areas, even these cities are rough and tough and dangerous. Um, this is... 
not exactly a lawless society. Of course, there is law and order. There are punishments for this. But it's a society where masculinity is very much defined by um, the willingness to inflict violence and the ability to not show fear at the threat of this violence. So psychologically, uh, and of course, we can, we're painting with a broad brush here. It's a large country, millions of, of white citizens uh, living within. General assessment is that this is a society that is, is violent. It's used to violence. It's prepared to deal with uh, solve problems through violence. And the expectation that violence might break out at any minute uh, definitely filters into male thought in the United States in this period. And that ratcheting effect is growing worse and worse through the 1850s because of growing political tension between North and South, because of the violence out in Kansas and in other uh, Western areas. And in fact, it also it leads to more volunteerism into that alternative American army, into the militia. You get to be part of a unit, you get to have some weapons training, you get to uh, be part of something, you defend your home, your homelands, your home state. Uh, and so on. And so it is a, a, a rough, dangerous society in many respects. And yes, this is broad brush, of course. You could probably happily live your life in, in the US in the 1850s, depending where you were, and never see a gun pulled in anger. But there are parts of the US where this is, um, the, 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 there is a gun law, effectively. It's, yeah. it's rough, it's tough, it's dangerous, and violence and masculinity go hand in hand. Right. Well, you've brought us to the verge of the Civil War, uh, a violent society, a heavily armed society, society in which uh, member membership of a, of a local military group, a militia group or so on, is, is, is very common. Um, let's take a break there and we'll come back and discuss the campaign, the Battle of Bull Run itself. See you in a few minutes. Well, welcome back to Military History Plus. Well, we've brought ourselves to the beginning of the American Civil War and the first battle of the war, the first Battle of Bull Run, is about to to, to, to to begin. So Spence, you've already mentioned some of the commanders there, Erwin McDowell, uh, PGDGT, Beauregard and others, some fantastic names to start with. Tell us something about the commanders. Uh, absolutely, Gary. So we mentioned previously that these, these were men who'd all campaigned in, in Mexico and all came from this very small uh, American regular army. So they, they, were all, they all knew each other, or at least knew of each other. And the man who'd actually commanded the U.S., well, being the primary commander of the U.S. in the Mexican War, Winfield Scott, would be the man who, who laid out the first plan of campaign for um, either side in this civil war. And he, he proposed this plan in, uh, in May 1861. We tend to know it now as the Anaconda Plan, although it wasn't called that at the time. And what he wanted to do was actually prepare the U.S. for a longer war, which would involve a deep blockade, a naval blockade of the Confederate States to deny them um, both the ability to sell cotton to Europe and import weaponry uh, from Europe, and also have a, a powerful army that would advance down the Mississippi River and actually capture New Orleans, of course, at that, that great port. It wasn't called the Anaconda Plan at the time. It was referred to as uh, the Great Snake instead in a, an illustration. And the, the image was a, a huge snake circling the um, Confederate state and, and slowly squeezing them to death, hence the name Anaconda Plan. Winfield Scott was the most... Um, highly ranked and experienced soldier of either side at the outbreak of the Civil War. But he was also very old. He was in his mid-70s. And worse still, he was extremely fat. He was so fat, he couldn't actually mount a horse properly. He had to have uh, help to get him onto a horse. He was also a difficult and cantankerous man who had the nickname Fuss and Feathers, which captures something, I think, about his, his attitude. And he was far too old to actually command an army in the field. 
And instead, a commander of the Union Army actually passed to a 42-year-old major, just a major at the outbreak of the war, uh, Irving McDowell. And McDowell had been a West Point graduate, but he'd spent most of his career actually as a staff officer. Um, he'd worked very good at handling paperwork and so on. And his, his actual elevation to command the Union Army at the start of the, uh, the Civil War was largely due to the fact he'd worked um, as a, um, alongside the Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon P. Chase. And Salmon P. Chase, had, with another fantastic name, had been very impressed with McDowell's abilities and basically campaigned to say, well, I know McDowell, he's done very well, he's very good at paperwork, let's promote him. And under his influence, McDowell was jumped three ranks. He went from being a major uh, to, you know, rocketed right through the ranks to become a brigadier general uh, and was assigned command of the um, what would become the Army of Northeastern Virginia, which was the Union's army at the outset of the war. I think you wanted to come in on the uh, there, Gary. I think I heard well, you. Uh, that's what I said. I, I think I called McDowell um, Irwin rather than Irving earlier. Obviously, I was confusing him with Rommel. Which I think <laughs> he actually hadn't got an awful lot in common, not in terms of military competence, I, I, I don't think. No, um, my serious point is it says something, I think, about the highly personalised nature of the US Army at this stage and the pull of influence, you know, of patronage. Is, is, is the same true on, on the other side? Uh, absolutely it is. So the Confederacy has a, a, an additional problem in the fact that it is entirely dependent, uh, its military is entirely dependent on officers effectively renouncing their oath to the United States and choosing to fight for the Confederacy, usually because of their loyalty to states, because the state identity is very strong um, in the, the uh, pre-Civil War United States. There's uh, in many cases, more loyalty to your state than there is to the, the nebulous idea of the United States. And it does mean that the uh, Confederate um, command arrangements aren't much the same. And, and indeed, the, the overall commander in the, the, of this campaign for the Confederates is the wonderfully named uh, Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard, who's a Louisiana Creole. He's, uh, in many ways, he's the epitome of the supremely polished officer of the um, pre-war regular army. He's, he's undoubtedly has, has a great deal. He's certainly a um, certain degree of military brilliance. He's a superb student, extremely intelligent. He also is a fluent French speaker, which is very important, of course, for an army that's so closely linked to French ideas. He served heroically and impressively in the, um, in the Mexican uh, war. And he's one of the first as well to um, abandon the United States and be, join the Confederacy. And in fact, he actually commands the bombardment at, at Fort, Fort Sumter. So he's also heavily um, sort of, he's, he's got an exciting background, but his actual rank and his overall experience is, is, is relatively limited. But he becomes the first brigadier general of the Confederate army because of his, um, his status. He's well known. He's, he looks the part. He's impeccably dressed. He's got a nice turn of phrase, uh, and so on. And so, so he, uh, he he's he, he's he's catapulted to Brigadier General too. So basically, you've got these massively overpromoted commanders. I mean, we don't know at this stage whether they're going to be any good or, or not. But it's really a shooting at the dark at this stage because nobody really knows it, how effective or otherwise they're going to. Be. So so. What, what's, what's, their, what's their strategy? This, this is interesting because apart from Winfield Scott, who I previously mentioned, he's a lieutenant general, by the way. Um, McDowell and Beauregard um, both have similar problems in the sense that they have armies that are being created out of this mishmash of volunteers, militia that's mobilising. McDowell does have some regular troops. He has some regular infantry and artillery. 
and even a small unit of U.S. Marines. Uh, but overall, they've got they're, they're bringing together armies the size of which have never been seen or haven't been seen in the USA that century. You'd have to go back to the War of Independence to see armies of this size. That the armies in the Mexican War were small, much smaller compared to the armies at, at Bull Run. And so they've got these problems. They've got these very hastily assembled armies. And what both sides really want to do, McDowell and Beauregard really want to do, is take some time and prepare themselves. They're, they're not idiots. So they may have been overpromoted, but they are professional soldiers. And they both recognize that their armies are seriously undertrained, completely unorganized. There's no staff systems. Everything has to be improvised. In many cases, uh, equipment isn't even standardized. You've got different people um, turning up with different weapons, different militia units have different equipment. Uh, that nothing is ready. And, and the, McDowell and Beauregard both want to take a, a comparatively defensive posture. McDowell wants to assemble his army around Washington. Beauregard wants to assemble his, his army in eventually central and northern Virginia, get them trained, get them prepared, and then fight a battle. Neither of them really wants to, to actually take the offensive in the opening weeks of the war. But, of course, um, this isn't just purely a military campaign. There's also a huge political imperative. So presumably you've got Lincoln in Washington and Jefferson Davis in Richmond urging them on and say, go and, go and attack the opposite capital. That's that's absolutely right. And, and as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the fact the capitals are so close together, barely 100 miles apart, inevitably draws all the eyes to this pulpit of war in, in central and northern Virginia. So, so what, 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 what's the problem? Clearly, just just march and attack. It's, it's obvious, isn't it? Well, it, President Lincoln agrees with you. And when he's, <laughs> there's a famous exchange with McDowell, McDowell, understandably, is saying, I, the, the troops aren't trained, uh, nothing's ready, we've got to take some time. Uh, and McDowell is given this um, reassuring comment from Lincoln, you are green, it is true, but they are green also. You are all green alike. And Lincoln's right. He's absolutely right eh, that both sides are basically as inexperienced and ill-trained as each other. But what Lincoln is also uh, facing the pressure of, which McDowell doesn't necessarily appreciate, is Lincoln wants to snuff this, this out as fast as possible. And he perceives, his perception is, the longer this goes on, the stronger the Confederacy is likely to become. Whereas if they, they can strike quickly against Richmond, um, you know, defeat the Beauregard's army onto Richmond, capture it, then this horrible secession could be snuffed out in a matter of months. And Lincoln has that idea in mind. Of course, later his ideas on the war would change, but he and his cabinet want to see this war ended really quickly. And so there's that pressure. Davis, uh, that's of course the Confederate president, is not putting Beauregard under quite so much pressure. The, the Confederates are, are effectively, although Beauregard has some ideas about advancing towards Washington, he, he never really puts them into practice. And so the Confederates are looking at a more defensive war. Their, their whole um, political imperative was we're defending ourselves. We're not taking the war to the north. It's the north that's taking the war to us. They're the invader. And so Beauregard is, is allowed to stand on the defensive instead. And, and, and in one sense, the American Civil War is a very modern war because it's a media war, isn't it? Mm. It's a very, um, a, a, a very opinionated press. And of course, uh, US newspapers at the time were not, um, not uh, uh, afraid of giving some quite forthright opinions. So, so presumably... Both presidents, I guess, generals must be coming under some some pressure from the press. That's absolutely true. And I think this is an aspect that is easily forgotten. Uh, and this is that America is uh, it's a vast society. It's um, it's media is extremely powerful and extremely influential, especially in the cities and even beyond this. In fact, it's a mark of whether you are 
a, a, a town to be considered important in the 1840s, 50s. Does your town have a newspaper? If it does, then it must be important. And so you, you, the regional press is fascinating. You have these tiny towns with just a few hundred people, but they manage to get a printing press and print a paper and say, okay, we're important. But they, the, the larger press that's based around the cities, so the New York press, the Washington press, the Richmond press, the Charleston press, these are very influential individuals. Um, and the, the, their newspapers are widely read, their cartoons are widely circulated. And they are seriously belligerent. Um, the the, the market, marketing, that's not quite the right word, but the imagery that is filling the newspapers in the in 1861 is absolutely outrageous in many states. Um, it's fascinating to compare recruitment campaigns in both North and South, the imagery and the, the language that's used to, say, the recruitment campaigns that's used in 1914 or even in 1917 in the USA. And it's often said, oh, you might be familiar, uh, listeners, with the, the image from 1917, destroy this mad brute, a recruitment poster where the German army is portrayed as a sort of King Kong style figure coming out of the sea to destroy America. And he's got a beautiful dams damsel in his arms. And with a, with club. a pickle halber on, on, on his head. The, the, on his head. And he's, he's vicious and all this. Uh, that trait, you can trace that lineage right back to um, the, the, the political cartoons the, and the recruitment in the American Civil War, where it's... Um, in the north, the secessionists are portrayed as snakes. They're treacherous. What do you do with a snake? You have to kill it. You have to defang it and kill it. Whereas in the south, the union are portrayed as crude brutes. They're often portrayed in the most horrific racial terms. Uh, and they're coming to, to rape and pillage and slaughter. Uh, and you must resist them. And so the, the press is hugely influential and perhaps never more so than in the build-up to the Bull Run campaign. And it's one of those stories uh, that where just a single idea suddenly catches on. And this idea is a slogan. And the slogan comes from the North, and the slogan is forward to Richmond. And as far as we know, this was first, first appeared in press on the 20th of June, 1861, in a New York paper, the New York Tribune. And it was a relatively small box. It wasn't a, a front page headline or anything like that. It was a, a small piece, an opinion piece, which read, the nation's war cry, forward to Richmond, forward to Richmond. The rebel Congress must not be allowed to meet there on the 20th of July. By that date, the place must be held by the National Army. And this is referring to the fact that Confederates were about to have um, their Congress in Richmond on the 20th of July. And it was felt that if this happened, then this would be an indication that Confederacy was a real state and that that would give them more legitimacy. It would give them more strength. This couldn't be allowed to happen. It was a relatively small box in a, a, a large paper. Of course, papers that day filled with text, but it caught the mood. And forward to Richmond and variations of that suddenly became the rallying cry of the Northern press. And the clamour for this was universal in the major papers. Indeed, the, the papers start to outdo each other to try and promote this even more and more and more. And this fixed idea forms that they, the Confederacy must be crushed before that Congress meets. Richmond must be in, in uh, union hands by then. This puts staggering pressure on the um, Union government, on Lincoln himself, on his cabinet. And so he starts to pressure McDowell, you've got to go, you've got to um, start your offensive. Uh, and McDowell, ultimately, he has to accede to those political imperatives. Right, well, we come to the, the campaign and then the battle itself. Now, both of us being experienced university lecturers, we would stand up in front of a group of students and we would put up a PowerPoint map and we would explain all the detail. Well, we can't do that because um, we're on a podcast. You know, we both got good faces for radio, as the saying goes. <laughs> um, so without getting into too much 
nitty gritty detail of who went where and when. What's 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 the broad outlines of the the bull run? Well, that, it's a little difficult, as we've said, to describe this without maps. Just for listeners, many good maps of this campaign are available. But in broad terms, McDowell uh, is coming from Washington D.C. and he's going to advance in the long term. He's going to advance on Richmond, but to do that, he has to go past Manassas. Uh, there's a big rail junction there, and that's where Beauregard's placed his army, which is in central Virginia. McDowell's going to march on that army. Beauregard's in a defensive position on the south side of Bull Run, the river. But there's, not, there's another army, in fact, uh, some distance away, that's going to play a role. So McDowell's marching on Beauregard, but some distance away in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley, there's another Confederate force under Joseph Johnson. He's got about 12,000 men out there. And they're screening a Union force, which is, is glaring at them in the Shenandoah Valley. But there's very little happening there. There's some really desultory skirmishing. And Johnson is going to use the interior lines, the rail lines, to actually transfer his army from Shenandoah to Manassas just in time to participate uh, in the first battle of Bull Run. McDowell isn't aware of this uh, until it's until indeed the battle is, is over, in fact, which means that whereas before McDowell was advancing with a, with a small numerical advantage against Beauregard, now the numbers are about even. And McDowell's plan is to advance towards uh, Bull Run with his, his, uh, his army. It's, it's relatively large. It's, it's certainly by American terms, it's huge. It's about 35,000 men, but it's massively inexperienced. And the, the movement is meant to be a rapid march that's going to sweep down and, and overwhelm the Confederates. In fact, it's a, it's a real jumble. Units are ill-disciplined. They're dropping out. They're stopping for rest and relaxation. They're plundering as well. The, the Union Army has some problems with plundering. And they're all, of course, completely inexperienced and in many cases quite unfit as well. They're not trained for this kind of work. So McDowell's advance is a bit of a lumbering advance into this region. And by the 18th of July, he's reached a place called Centerville, from which he can see the Confederate positions, or he can reconnoiter them across Bull Run. His initial uh, plan is to feint a direct assault at the Confederate position, straight down the road, uh, straight at them. But that's just a feint. In, in actual fact, he's going to hook instead. He's going to hook into the Confederate left. He's going to continue that feint towards attacking them at the centre, and but he's going to outmaneuver them across uh, Bull Run uh, near a place called Matthew Hill, swing into the Confederate left flank and roll it up uh, against the river. And it's not actually a bad plan. In operational terms, it's got a lot going for it. The problem is he's trying to do it with an army that is not equipped for this kind of speed of manoeuvre. Right. Let, let me just sort something out of my own mind. Uh, it's Joseph Johnston with a T, isn't it? It and is, yes. It's not the same. There's, there's two Johnstons on the Confederate side, and this is Joseph as opposed to Albert Sidney. That's right, yes. So Albert Sidney, who is considered one of the great stars of the Confederacy, and, and, but of course he's killed at Shiloh in 1862, whereas Joseph Johnson is uh, a highly experienced officer, actually. He's a, he's a Brigadier General pre-war. He's a Brigadier General in the Quartermaster's Department, uh, rather than in a, in a fighting arm, and, or, or a teeth arm or so on. Uh, he's a Serbic. He's uh, he's pretty. He's very tough. There's no doubt about that. He's a, a real tough character, physically tough and so on. Uh, but he's not flashy. He's not um, stylish in the way that Beauregard is. Um, he'll go on to um, have a, an interesting war. And in the words of Longacre, I mentioned Longacre's book before, uh, Early Morning of War, and he's written many others. Uh, he has a nice phrase about Joseph Johnston, and that was, Joseph Johnston never occupied a position that he wasn't prepared to abandon. <laughs> which is a little bit harsh, but it does capture something. He's a defensively minded, excuse uh, excuse me, a defensively minded general 
Uh, he's also a bit of a difficult character. He's constantly having friction with President Davis, and he'll continue for the entirety of the war. Um, but he's he's on the field too. So, so we've got Beauregard and Johnston on one side. We've got McDowell on the other. Yes. How does it come to, to a fight? So um, after an initial fate towards this, this frontal attack um, straight down, um, the, the, the heart, the throat, really, the Confederate position, which pins a considerable amount of Confederate troops on that position. Beauregard is considering an offensive of his own uh, across the across Bull Run and towards uh, the Union lines on that point, which probably wouldn't have worked out terribly well. But that's on the 18th of July. On the 21st of July, after some manoeuvring, some reorganization, McDowell makes this big hook into the Confederate left flank, and it's actually executed pretty well. He gets his troops across Bull Run. He gets his forward brigades into action around a place called Matthews Hill. And he's found a weak point of the Confederate line. The, the Confederate line here is, is greatly overstretched. It's not um, in a particularly strong position. It's not where Beauregard thinks the main battle is going to be fought. His eyes are, are sort of locked on the centre point. And a Confederate brigade, and one thing to bear in mind about this is there's no standard size for brigades or regiments at this stage. Um, brigades can vary in size from about 1,000 men up to uh, 4,000 men. There's no formal organisation, which gives you some idea of the amateur nature. A Confederate brigade gets really heavily hit uh, by two oncoming Union brigades, which overlap it effectively. And uh, in a linear battle, of course, you've got lines of firing men. Nothing is more dangerous than having your flanks overlapped because you'll, you'll, be, you'll be chopped up. It's, it's a moment of real danger for the Confederacy here because the, that brigade um, is under severe pressure from the oncoming Union assault. They seem to be, well, they are driving it back. Situations deteriorating quite dramatically in the morning. And ultimately, the Confederates are only propped up from a, from a really serious collapse on that flank because some of Johnston's troops, um, who, of course, have arrived by rail recently, are quickly moved over to that flank. And they, they, uh, they're driven back in turn, but they just prop up the Confederate flank long enough to fall back to the, the part of the battlefield where the, the battle will be decided. And that's Henry Hill, which is effectively in the centre of the battlefield. I, I've, I've got a feeling, I don't know why, that a very famous American Civil War character is about to make an appearance. Is that true? Your spider sense has not misled you because on Henry Hill is one of the most famous figures of the American Civil War, and that's Thomas Jackson, uh, an instructor at the Virginia Military Institute, with a brigade of Virginian troops. And Johnson is actually riding into battle in his instructor's uniform. He's wearing blue at the time. He's not wearing Confederate grey at this time. And he's arrived at just the right time. And he's able to form up his brigade. And as I say, the numbers vary enormously. He's got about 2,000 men-ish with some other units that start to join him, start to mingle in with him. And he's got some artillery. And he's Johnson, of course, has been a, uh, sorry, Jackson, I should say, been an instructor at BMI. He's highly educated. Um, he's a peculiar man, lots of eccentricities, but he does know uh, the business of soldiering. And he's able to get his brigade into what's effectively a reverse slope position. So his men can uh, are shielded from Union fire. His artillery in particular can fire, recoil down the slope, reload, then be run up again to fire in relative safety. And he forms a defensive position there. And keen-eared listeners will know, of course, that um, Thomas Jackson is going to earn a very famous nickname, and he earns it on this hill, because his Virginians are in position, a variety of uniforms, variety of colours, but they're standing there. And one of the brigades that's been fighting out on the left, commanded by the, the, the wonderfully named Brigadier Barnard Elliot B, 
He's retreating past him, and a B's brigade has been really badly cut up. It's taken a lot of damage, a lot of casualties. And B's brigade are falling back in some disorder when they see Jackson's um, position on Henry Hill. And what happens next is still a matter of dispute. Either B turns around and says to his men something along the lines of, there stands Jackson like a stone wall, rally behind the Virginians, which puts his battered brigade in behind them. Or he may have said something a lot more derogatory and considerably more obscene, because we know from B's record at West Point prior to the war that he'd accumulated a staggering number of demerits for foul and abusive language. So this was clearly quite a profane officer in the heat of battle, and he sees this happening, and I dare say he may have said something that was not for innocent ears. We'll never know, because B, soon after that, is shot. He's actually, unfortunately, shot clean through the torso. He dies a very painful death of his wounds, and so there's no account left. But what is true is Jackson is standing there like a stone wall. He's formed an anchor for the rest of the Confederate line. Damaged and uh, disordered units rally behind him. Reinforcements come up and extend the line. And the rest of the battle will be fought on this position with Jackson anchoring the entire Confederate line. Well, I mean, Jackson, Stonewall Jackson is such a fascinating character. Uh, I feel a, a, a later podcast coming on about him and, and some other American Civil War generals. But I think, the, the, I guess the key point here is that Jackson, and you, you rightly say he's he's highly eccentric. Suppose is, is, is he going to battle munching onions and things like that? Anyway, but you know he's he's all, all sorts of um, habits are, uh, are, are attributed to him. But he provides a degree of calmness mm. of keeping keeping his nerve under fire. Uh, so where everything is around him is going to bits, he manages to keep his men under control. And I think this striking image of of of, of the stone wall is almost one of his greatest contributions to the Confederacy, isn't it? It's this idea of you you can pull um, uh, order out of chaos. Mm. And that's exactly what, what, what he does. Because, of course, later he becomes famous for being a daring offensive general. But here mm. we just see him on the on the defensive and, and providing calm leadership in a moment. Absolutely. And I think Jackson is a fascinating character, a really unusual eccentric character in some ways that the epitome of, of that borderline between genius and madness uh, when it comes to command. And uh, uh, endlessly fascinating, to, terrific books have been written about him, including about his early life and his relationship with his family and confederacy and so on. But I, I completely agree with you. He's, his talent at this battle is, one, he's able to, uh, to identify and occupy a good position and hold it. And whereas a less experienced or overexcited commander might have tried to just advance into the, the, the Union as they're pushing forward, he holds his ground. And he, he adopts for the first time this very eccentric action, which has become synonymous with him, which is he rides around on his horse and he holds his left arm up with his palm facing out, almost as if he's about to swear an oath on a Bible or something. Um, he says this is actually to balance the blood in his body and allow good circulation. But it, just that eccentricity immediately marks him out to soldiers. and they, He's very recognisable, even though he's wearing Union blue. He's very recognisable. And he's calm and he keeps his troops calm. And, and he also, has, he's had the advantage that as an instructor at the VMI for 10 years, uh, he's a great believer in drill and discipline. In some ways, he's a martinet. And his brigade has been, uh, unusually, has been unusually well drilled. And so they're able to keep calm themselves and hold their position. And uh, his, his role is absolutely crucial. Well, the VMI, of course, is the Virginia Military Institute, where I think both of us have spent some time researching. And there's a statue of Stonewall Jackson overlooking the parade square. And cadets uh, have to salute the statue as they go past. 
to this day, or at least until, until very recently. Okay, so um, Jackson gets some order out of chaos. And does this turn the tide on the battle? It ultimately does, but not immediately, because Jackson's formed a line. There's other troops coming to extend his line, but there's also Confederate troops in, in serious disorder who've taken heavy losses, are retreating past him and are, are sort of milling around on the flanks. The Union presses forward because they've, they've driven in the Confederate left. The battle is going their way. They can see, in, in the words of one, the Rebs are skedaddling. They're running away, which it, they are. They've been driven back. Uh, but this over-exuberance is ultimately the undoing of the Union Army because brigades advance on Henry Hill, but they don't attack as brigades. They attack as individual regiments. And in some ways, this is defaulting back to the very much the American military tradition, which is all about small units, as we've previously discussed. But it's also reflective of, of just a loss of control on the battlefield. It's a chaotic battle. Staff systems have broken down. Nobody's really in overall charge of the Union assault. And so individual regiments go forward bravely in many cases, but they go forward piecemeal. They go forward in dribs and drabs. There's no overall coordination of the assault. Nobody's really in charge of it. There's no real attempts to try and extend the battle around Henry Hill. And units become fixated on the fighting there because there's huge clouds of smoke over the battlefield. There's the constant roar of gunfire. It's clear that's where the battle's being fought. Units appear and just attack up, up the slopes. And run into heavy Confederate fire and, and have driven back. And, and this pattern repeats itself uh, through the afternoon. A series of uncoordinated Union assaults on the Confederate line, all of which are repulsed. Some actually have get, get pretty close to actually breaking into the Confederate position, but none of them do so until eventually, around about 4 p.m., timings um, are a little bit uncertain. There's a kind of collective spasm in the Union assault. Exactly what triggers it isn't clear. It's that's a combination of exhaustion, the heat of the day. These units have been marching and fighting for many hours. A lot of officers have been killed. Suddenly, the Union Army, it recoils. There's another assault that fails. The army recoils, and just a general panic starts to spread through the Union Army, which leads to a wholesale rout. The, the uh, inexperienced Union soldiers turn and run, abandoning equipment in many cases, and just go retreating right back the way they came. And... Uh, They've effectively been broken just by sheer exhaustion and the, the inability to break through that Confederate line, which, of course, is anchored on Stonewall Jackson. And the, U the Union retreats in, in disarray, abandoning equipment, uh, and in some cases being pursued by small amounts of rebel cavalry or Confederate cavalry, I should say. But overall, the, the both armies are, are pretty much equally exhausted. The, the Confederates can't really mount much of a pursuit. They're, they're tired and they're disorganised as well. Um, the Union flares off pretty quickly. And though they are harassed by artillery fire and they're chased by, by some cavalry, uh, they basically are allowed to retreat across Bull Run and retreat all the way back uh, towards Washington. And but, but, but in PR terms, surely this comes across as being a clear Confederate victory and Union defeat. It, absolutely it is. It's it's quite clearly ended in... in um, not, I won't use the word decisive because it's not that, but it's a clear a Confederate victory. Um the, the actual size of the battle itself is, of course, really small compared to, to later battles. But by the stance of the U.S., this is still a, a vicious, vicious engagement with total casualties. Uh, it's around about 2,800 Union casualties, maybe about 2,000 Confederate casualties as well. And considering this, uh, uh, that this is these are casualties on a level that the U.S. has never experienced uh, in effectively living memory. You'd have to go right back really to the War of Independence to see this type of bloodletting. And of course, all the casualties are American as well. So it's a it's a, 
a small but bloody engagement by the standards of the day. And of course, it, it completely unhinges Lincoln's hopes and indeed the, the northern media's hopes that this war will end quickly. And that in some ways, I think, is the most important aspect, the legacy of the, the, the battle, is it's, it immediately becomes clear that this is going to be a much longer war. It's going to be much longer for the Union. They haven't broken the, the rebels. The Confederate Congress has met. The war is going to go on. But there's also recognition in the South. This is going to be a long war. There's um, relatively muted uh, jubilation in the aftermath of this battle because most realists recognise, well, the Union will reorganise and it will come again. And there'll be a long war for this, and it's not going to end in a single battle. Perhaps the most important legacy is not actually within the, the, the United States and the Confederate States. It's actually Europe, because, of course, eyes in Britain and France are watching this war with, with great interest. And there's a, a general expectation initially in the press that, well, the Union is probably going to crush the Confederacy immediately. And when that doesn't happen, it provides just enough interest, particularly in, uh, in Britain, and just no political interest say, well, that's interesting. Let's see what happens. And of course, it, it means there's this tantalizing carrot held out to the Confederates that maybe Britain and France will intervene or become involved in the war on the Confederate side, because of course, Britain and France are heavily dependent on cotton uh, from the South. And so it gives the Confederacy important legitimacy in Europe. It gives the Confederacy legitimacy within its own state, saying, look, we can defend our territory. We can defeat the Union which it doesn't win the war for the Confederacy, but it does ensure the Confederacy will be able to fight for, for years to come. And so the although there's an initial reaction to it, there's this horror and dismay in the North, there's jubilation in the South, that gradually gives way to a recognition this is going to be a long and hard-fought war and it's not going to be decided by a single battle. Well, thanks for that, Spence. And of course, it's we, we won't continue... It with the story any further now, but then there's a, a break of some months before the armies come to, to grips again. Uh, so this really does end, if you like, the first military phase of the American Civil War. Um, well, thank you. A, a really, really interesting deep dive into a battle which, as we said earlier on, is not as well known as it, as, as it ought to be. Um, I guess if there's any big things we can pull out of this to return to on a later occasion, it, it might be that the first battle of a war is often very different, of a long war, I should say, is often very different from what happens thereafter. But actually, the results of that first battle can set up all sorts of expectations uh, in the minds of belligerents, which are not always realised. So the first battle to be compared to later battles, I think, is a really interesting topic for uh, later discussion. But in the meantime, Absolutely. we've done 1861. So, uh, well, the first bit of 1861, anyway, as far as the American Civil War is concerned, uh, there's plenty more scope for future deep dives. So for our next deep dive, we'll be moving away from the American Civil War to a war slightly near our own time and actually concerning a character very much concerned with British. But for the moment, thank you very much. Goodbye from me, from Gary Sheffield. Goodbye from me, Spencer Jones. Goodbye.